the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend producing, Dave King engineering here in Portland, Pedro Bartez producing and engineering in Seattle. Today we're looking forward to a conversation with Bina E. Wilkins. Dr. Wilkins is the author of Under the Broom Tree. She's going to talk about anxiety and depression and will reflect on the life of Elijah the prophet in the Old Testament. So that's coming up uh, later this hour. But first, some of the day's headlines. Hunter Biden was indicted today on federal gun charges of the special counsel David Weiss investigation. He was charged with making a false statement in the purchase of a firearm, making a false statement related to information required to be kept by a federal firearms license dealer and one count of possession of a firearm by a person who is an unlawful user or of uh, addiction. Uh, to a controlled substance. According to the indictment on or about the 12th of October 2018 in the District of Delaware, the defendant, Robert Hunter Biden, is in connection with the acquisition of a firearm that is a Colt Cobra 38 SPL special revolver with serial numbers, and they give all that, knowingly made a false and fictitious written statement. It goes on from there. The indictment also states that on or about the 12th of October, the same year, 2018, through Uh, On or about October 23rd in the District of Delaware, the defendant, Robert Hunter Biden, knowing that he was an unlawful user of and addicted to any substance, um, a narcotic, uh, did purchase the firearms. These are the first charges uh, Weiss has brought against the first son since being granted special counsel status. It was reported in 2021 that police had responded to an incident in 2018 when a gun owned by Hunter was thrown into a trash can outside a market in Delaware, a source uh, with knowledge of the incident on the uh, in October of 2018, say the police um, indicated that uh, Hallie Biden, who is the widow of President Biden's late son, Bo, uh, was um, apparently in the vehicle when the gun was thrown from that vehicle. Now, where this will go and what the penalty will be is yet to be seen. But the indictment was handed down today, as was promised earlier in the week. The White House was forcefully criticized after they sent a letter calling on the media to increase scrutiny of House Republicans and their impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Ian Sams is a special assistant to the president and spokesperson for the White House Counsel's Office, and he wrote the letter. The White House urged media outlets to ramp up their scrutiny of House Republicans for opening an impeachment inquiry of uh, the president and a sharp message to news organizations on Wednesday. Iowa Republican Representative Ashley Henson called the letter outrageous. Has the White House gotten so bold that they are brazenly telling the media to um, predetermine their coverage, she wrote on X, formerly known as Twitter. As a former reporter, this is outrageous. Republicans will follow the facts wherever they will lead, and the media should report the facts without bias. Jonathan Turley, a, an al- analysis um, 
with Fox News and George Washington University law professor wrote that the Biden White House's letter had an uncomfortable feeling of marching orders to the media. It's a call for media to tailor the coverage to push the position of the White House against this effort to ramp up the investigation into corruption. It is an approach that is already embraced by many in the media. He wrote the White House is now calling for the media to again form the wagons around the president and attack the impeachment efforts as it did the laptop and the corruption investigation to continue. He added that the most concerning part of the letter was there was no concern over making such an open pitch to the press. If this doesn't demonstrate the contempt the White House and Democrats have for transparency and an honest press, I don't know what is. The North Carolina Representative George Murphy wrote, Indiana Representative Rudy Yakum said the White House's move was brazen. We know the media was going to run interference on trying to cover up for the president anyway. You just don't expect the White House to be this brazen in admitting their collusion. Meanwhile, at House GOP will follow uh, the facts wherever they lead, he said. Others noted that the move was not okay and equated it to communist BS. GOP House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced a formal impeachment inquiry into Biden on Tuesday. And House Republicans uncovered serious and credible allegations into the president's conduct. Today, I am directing our House committee to open a formal impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden. McCarthy announced in a statement at the Capitol on Tuesday, this logical next step will give our committee the full power to gather all the facts and answers for the American public. Several people on X referred to the move as some kind of marching orders. Other members of Congress called out the letter as well as Republican Virginia, Virginia Representative Bob Good described it as unseen level of collusion between the media and Biden. The White House did not comment on the criticism. Well, the president gave a speech today on Bidenomics and how we have all benefited by them. If it's uh, really the economy stupid, as was uh, said by James Carville, famously insisting some years ago, then Joe Biden and the uh, uh, company are cruising for a bruising come November 2024. Ironically, Biden has embraced his uh, mess of an economy and gleefully branded it Bidenomics. In doing so, Team Biden has sought to spin this demonstrably bad economy as really not bad at all. In fact, according to Biden, it's doing great. Well, left media talking heads mostly go along with the, um, with the president. In early August, Newsweek published an article declaring Biden's economy is booming. Here's why you're not feeling it. Well, it seems to me if it's booming, you ought to feel it. Well, the article quoted a former economic advisor for Ronald Reagan, Arthur Laffer, who said, if I were a Biden economist today, I'd be smiling. Why? Well, according to Laffer, inflation numbers are coming way down. Employment numbers appear to be strong. Real wages for the first time appear to be increasing. The GDP number is 12 is rather 2.4 percent. That, at least in recent historical context, is pretty good. The stock market had 11 straight days of positive, end quote. Well, at that moment, he was right. But today's economic news is telling a bit of a different story. Inflation has reversed course and is rising again for the second straight month. It's now back up to 3.7 percent over last year after a monthly jump of 0.3 percent. Meanwhile, for the third straight year, Americans' inflation-adjusted medium household income has decreased down another 2.3 percent from last year. The reality is Biden, Bidenomics after a pandemic is making Americans poor. Everything costs increasingly more in Biden's America. Well, speaking of being poor, that's that lowest unemployment rate that Biden boasts about hasn't translated into reducing the poverty rate. Last year, poverty in America rose to double digits, coming in at 12.4 percent, 
which is up from 7.8 percent last year and 5.2 percent in 2020. For Democrats who have a long history of complaining over any kind of wealth gap in America, Biden's been far worse for the country than Donald Trump ever was with those supposed tax cuts for the wealthy. It's not just Biden's massive spending programs that have resulted in the negative economy. It's also his war on fossil fuels. The price of gas hit an all-time high last summer, and he's still not uh, we've not come back from anywhere near the price when Trump was in office. Well, we'll continue to take a look at Bidenomics, as the president uh, announced, MAGAnomics as well, contrasting his economic policy with the previous administration. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, a conversation with Dr. Bina Wilkins, author of Under the Broom Tree. Well, in an interview earlier today, former President Donald Trump refused to clarify if he was holding a newspaper or a secret attack plan during a meeting at his New Jersey resort that has become a key piece of evidence in his indictment over mishandling of classified documents. During an interview with Trump for her serious XM show, Megyn Kelly asked him about an audio recording of the 2021 meeting when he allegedly showed a writer, a publisher, the two of his staff members, some sort of document that he described as secret. Well, the recording indicates that Trump was holding a classified Pentagon plan to attack Iran. But in an interview on Fox News, Trump claimed that he had a newspaper. Kelly asked why the president described the document as highly confidential and secret. If it was just a newspaper, Trump dodged the question, saying it doesn't matter what documents he was holding because he was protected by the Presidential Records Act. Hmm. Let me just tell you something. He said, number one, I did nothing wrong because I come under the Presidential Records Act. The fascists who are going after me and they're not going after Biden, even though he has. And he went on from there. I'm allowed to have these documents. Trump went on to say when he was pressed by the interviewer, um, not on whether he was legally allowed to have the documents, but about why he would claim that a newspaper was secret and could have been declassified. Trump again dodged. I would have. um I would have uh, to look at it, he said. I'm not going to talk to you about this because that's already been, I think, very substantiated and there's no problem with it, end quote. Well, it went on from there with very few answers or clarification, at least on that point. A top teachers union boss cited a far left smear factory in demonizing the parents rights movement by comparing it to the uptown clans. That opposed the end of racial segregation in the Supreme Court case, Brown versus Board of Education. So now parents who want to parent their own sons and daughters are racists, uptown clans, if you will. Those same words, and I'm quoting her, those same words that you heard in terms of wanting segregation post Brown versus Board. Those same words you hear today, Randy Weingarten, the president of the American Federation of Teachers, said in a podcast interview published on Tuesday. I was kind of gobsmacked when I was talking to Southern Poverty Law Center, which explains a lot. And they showed me the same words, choice, parental rights, and an attempt to divide parents versus teachers, Weingarten said. At that point, it was white parents versus other parents, but it's the same kind of words. The AFT president went on to describe former Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, conservative commentator Chris Rufo, and Michael Ferris, founder of the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, as extremists who want the end of public education as we know it. Well, yeah, as we know it. Well, a Rufo... 
uh, will say we need to create universal public school distrust to get to universal vouchers. Weingarten went on to say others want it because they hate knowledge or they fear broad based knowledge. She clearly does not get the point. Her talking points heavily echo the Southern Poverty Law Center, a far left organization that's notorious for branding mainstream conservative and Christian nonprofits as hate groups. Translated, you don't agree, or anti-government extremists and placing them on a map that chapters um, with the Ku Klux Klan are also um, visible. As I explain in the book, um, said uh, S, uh, Southern Poverty Law Center um, uh, director, making hate pay the corruption of the Southern Poverty Law Center. They took the program. It was used to bankrupt organizations associated with the Ku Klux Klan, weaponize it against conservative groups, partially to scare its donors into ponying up cash and partially to silence ideological po- opponents and went on from there. But apparently, according to the uh, the head of the teacher union, parents who oppose rather radical changes in curriculum in public schools are tantamount to uptown clans. And that's spelled with a K clans. Um, and they are segregationists and racists all in one swoop. Well, as the United Auto Workers Union is poised to go on a targeted strike against Detroit's three biggest automakers at midnight on Friday morning, the Biden administration officials are preparing economic measures to protect suppliers to the auto industry from long term damage, according to uh, three people aware of the internal conversations. And while the administration is not expected to intervene in a strike, Biden aides are worried that a protracted walkout could wipe out thousands of suppliers that depend on the auto business from the three key automakers, Ford, General Motors and Stellantis, said the people who spoke on condition of anonymity to describe the private deliberations. A widespread failure of these uh, smaller supplier firms, which number as many as 5,600, could impede the broader U.S. auto supply chain even after the possible strike ends, according to uh, observers. The uh, UAW strikes demands, well, in the um, it's unclear what form the aid that the U.S. government might consider would take. But one option would be for the Labor Department to provide grants to assist workers at firms affected by the strike. The administration wants to be sure to do what it can to protect the Detroit supply chains. A White House spokesperson declined to comment on any internal planning, but the anticipation is rather serious. Well, Scranton Joe fancies himself a union guy, a union president, but it just doesn't pass the giggle test anymore. After all, how do you does a union guy um, live in a mansion once owned by the DuPont family with a six bedroom beach house to boot? Well, the Democrats used to be the party of blue collar America, the party of mainstream, while the Republicans were the party of Wall Street. But that's not true anymore. In recent years, the two parties have done something of a switch. All this brings us to the looming deadline at midnight tonight, at which time, if the agreement hasn't been reached between labor and management, the United States, uh, the United Auto Workers, rather, will go on strike, an action that will no doubt shake and already fragile American economy, as the AP reports. The auto industry accounts for about 3% of the nation's gross domestic product, and though union leaders say they're mulling strikes at a small number of factories run by those automakers, as many as 146,000 workers could eventually walk off their jobs. The effects would be most immediate in Michigan and other auto job-heavy states, such as Ohio and Indiana, but a prolonged strike could trigger car shortages and layoffs in supply, auto supply industries, and other sectors. 
Well, this uh, spells trouble for Scranton Joe, as former UAW President Bob King said in a recent interview. UAW members feel abandoned by the Democrat Party. I think there's a segment of the uh, party that sees itself as serving corporations rather than the common good. We've had a lot of disappointments. King cited Bill Clinton's NAFTA agreement and the failure of uh, the Biden Inflation Reduction Act to ensure that clean energy funds flow to union workers. So there's some dissension in the ranks. What King failed to say in so many words is that no one is buying the electric vehicles. Not surprisingly, the UAW has yet to endorse Biden's reelection. As uh, current UAW President Sean Fain says, actions are going to dictate endorsements. So we'll see how things uh, continue to play out. And we have a lot of issues to resolve. There's a lot with the EV transition that has to happen. And there's hundreds of billions of our taxpayer dollars that are helping fund this. And workers cannot continue to be left behind in that equation, end quote. Well, Fain, by the way, says that uh, office uh, offers he's received from the big three automakers have been completely unacceptable. Now, to be clear, though, some of the UAW's demands are pretty outrageous. A 46 percent pay raise over the four years and a 32 year, a 32 hour work week while getting uh, paid for 40 come immediately to mind. And folks wonder why car companies go overseas or south of the border for cheap labor. Well, says Fain, we will strike all three companies and historic first initially at a limited number of targeted locations that we will be announcing. Then based on what happens in bargaining, we're um, going to be announcing more locals that are going to be called to stand and strike. If there is a strike, counters Ford CEO Jim Farley, it's not because Ford didn't make a great offer. We should be working creatively to solve hard problems rather than planning strikes and PR events. What might a rank-and-file union member think of all of this? We're glad you've asked. In An anonymous source, a big three union worker, says the following. Yeah, the 32 or 40 uh, is a pipe dream, and I think Fain knows that. We don't hear him mention it anymore. Pensions are also not coming back. Anybody hired after 2009 didn't get a pension but got 401k uh, contributions instead. As far as wages, he's got a point. Inflation has been sky high thanks to uh, Brandon, as he, uh, and I'm quoting, just in the last four years, car prices are up 34%, and he goes on from there. So the rank and file may or may not be in line with, um, Decisions that may be made or not made by midnight tonight. We'll follow that story. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. There's a generation that's being affected by anxiety and depression and attempting to end their lives. So says my next guest, Dr. Bina Wilkins. They need to be validated and liked, and they're looking in for love in all the wrong places. Well, this dangerous trend is hurting youth in ways no one seems to be acknowledging. Well, in her book, Under the Broom Tree, uh, Dr. Wilkins, she shares many of her own stories and struggles, explains that we're scarring the next generation and uses various analogies in the life of the prophet Elijah to help readers grasp anxiety and depression. She's a pediatrician and has been for more than 20 years. She noticed the trend, boys and especially girls in their tween and teen years, anxiety and depression. And though she shares her own painful story, about growing up with a mother who had mental uh, illness. Her struggle with anxiety and feeling worthless was something 
that she found help with in her faith. Well, Dr. Uh, Bina Wilkins joins us today to talk about the book. She uh, writes under the pen name B.E. Matthews, is a graduate of the University of Texas Medical Branch and completed her pediatric residency training at UC Irvine. She is a board-certified pediatrician with nearly two decades of dedication to the well-being of children and adolescents. She offers a fresh perspective on mental health issues and shares her own story. She lives in Florida with her husband and two sons, and we are delighted to welcome you here today. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Wilkins. Thank you for having me. Your book weaves your own story in with some lessons from the life of the prophet Elijah. Let's begin with your story. Um, tell us a little bit about your background and how this subject of anxiety and, and depression has hit close to home. Um, so the book um, originated with uh, me writing in some prayer journals about 11 years ago, and I didn't know I was writing a book at the time. Um, I was working through some some struggles I had, and God was just speaking to my heart. And some of the things I wrote, I, I bookmarked and I saved. I didn't know why. And then years later, I was listening to a message about Elijah when I was in church, and it really, I, I felt the, the reason why was you know, he wanted me to put this together um, into a book. Uh, and uh, so I do share my struggles with anxiety and depression before I was saved, especially um, and uh, I focus the most on Elijah's moments under the broom tree, but I do offer a little bit of an introduction to what was going on in the, the nation of Israel at the time mm-hmm. when Elijah came on the scene and some events from his life before the broom tree, and the one that was immediately before was when he did this mountaintop miracle calling down fire from heaven. Um, but the next thing we see is that he's despondent and asking God to let him die, and I just wonder what happened to his mind. Um, you know, he should have felt great. <clears throat> But he was an ordinary man just like us, and God wanted us to see both sides of this man and show us how he loved him when he was at his lowest point. And when he laid there under the broom tree asking God to let him die, God wasn't rebuking him or chastising him in any way. Instead, he nurtured him and cared for him like a loving parent. And I was struck by that because I've struggled with anxiety my entire life, and I know what it's like to be under the broom tree at the end of my strength. And God's met me there every time. So in the book, I share some specific broom tree experiences and what God shared with me mm-hmm. in those times. I see these patients come in and um, I have like 10, 20 minutes to talk to them. I never um, have an opportunity to share my faith and um, really talk to them the way I want to. So this book allowed me to compile the things that I would say um, to the young people I see struggling with anxiety and depression nowadays. You write that um, we're witnessing a generation of young people that are in serious trouble. Uh, and uh, as a pediatrician, what are some of your major concerns for the young people that you see and as you look out on the culture? Um, a lot of them believe that they should be happy and feel good all the time, like every day. And they seek out quick fixes and pleasures that offer numbness, but not real solutions. Um, and they don't seek the truth in God's word. They seek it in other places, and they like social media, the internet. Um, and they want to be liked. They want all the likes on their posts. There's a lot of talk about acceptance and tolerance, but they don't want anyone to disagree with them. If you disagree, then you're intolerant or toxic in some way. It's hard to have discussions with people without them being offended to the point that they shut you out. Um, and a lot of young people, I think. They're, they think their identity lies in something superficial, like their body shape or their appearance, how much money they make, how many followers they have. 
And you're seeing this as, and I would certainly agree, as a destructive trend that does not bode well for young people at a time when we're hearing uh, stories of young people ending their lives out of sheer depression or frustration or any number of, of things. How optimistic are you that there's help on the horizon, given the fact that you as a pediatrician can't talk about your faith directly with your patients? Do you see any light on the on the horizon that we might look to to um, find encouragement for the future of young people who are struggling, as you've described? I think it really is up to the church to include, you know, this Gen Z that's out there. Um, I've seen, you know, young um Younger people who, like, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Lacey Abercrombie. She's someone that I do uh, follow on Instagram, and I heard her speak at a conference. And she's a, she's in her 20s, but she, you know, she has a heart for Gen Z. And um, if we have more people like that um, trying to reach out to them, you know, speak to them on their level, let them know they're be comfortable talking to them, and um, let them know, you know, hey, I'm a Christian, and um, I've had these struggles, and you're just very real and transparent with them. You become a real, you know, a person they can relate to. Um, and uh, you just uh, have to teach young people that um, their identity, their primary identity is the child of God made in his image. Every single aspect of themselves of outside of that is secondary. Um, and it's normal when you're growing up to have questions about whether your body is right, whether you fit in, who you are, what's your identity. and um, if you have that as a primary identifier, I think it gives you a strong foundation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In the book, you make the point that God often meets us in our lowest point in life. And while we might be discouraged to see young people struggling, it does present an opportunity. Um, why do you think and give us some examples in your life or in the life of Elijah, where at the lowest point, God met you and perhaps you were more um, open to his voice than you might have been at a high point? So um, I think when we're at our lower points in life, um, there's fewer distractions and we're very humbly aware of our lack of self-sufficiency. Um, so it allow, I think it kind of opens your heart to hearing what he has to say. There's a surrendering of your will and your pride uh, when you're in the lowest points. And uh, I do talk about... Um, in the chapter, how I struggled with unforgiveness um, Mm -hmm. with uh, my mom. And um, it was uh, years of struggle. And uh, I talk about uh, how it was in a life group that I had joined that I started to finally make a breakthrough um, in it. And um, I have to always ask God to show me where there's unforgiveness in my life. And I have to ask him to help me forgive. And um, he's just shown me ways that I kind of go through it. It's chapter 12 um, about how he helped me to forgive someone who was close to me that I trusted that had hurt me for many years. And that was a broom tree moment when I was really struggling with that unforgiveness. Yeah. Elijah's first instinct um, when he was experiencing depression, if you will, was to pray. And yet that's oftentimes our last resort. Um, Why do you think that's the case? Why do we see prayer as a last resort? Um, I think we're so prone to often talk about our problems to other people, our friends, to our family, or, you know, on social media before we go go to God on, in prayer. Um, but if it's important enough to talk about, then we should be talking to God about it first. Um, this is something that I have to work on, too. And I think uh, most of us are like this. We're so self-sufficient, able to solve problems and multitask. We can control and manipulate and manifest 
all things. So when a problem or issue comes up, that's our default mode, our go-to. We should be able to fix things on our own with our own abilities all the time. But that's not always the case. And Elijah got it right um, there. He was, and he was commended for it. His first instinct was always to pray. And he was noted to have been an ordinary man who prayed earnestly. And that's an example I think we can all follow. We're talking with uh, Bina Wilkins. Dr. Wilkins is a pediatrician and author of Under the Broom Tree. We're going to continue our conversation in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Brina Wilkins, who writes under the pen name B.E. Matthews. She's a graduate of the University of Texas Medical Branch and completed her pediatric residency training at UC Irvine. She is the author most recently of Under the Broom Tree. She writes about depression and anxiety and uh, draws our attention to Elijah who was in many ways an insecure, anxious, depressed man at times, which may be somewhat surprising, but gives hope to the rest of us. Now, what is it that uh, we can learn from Elijah about those moments when we, despite our successes, are overwhelmed by either depression or anxiety? Um, I think what we can learn is that there's there's hope and, you know, you, you go to God um as as you are, you don't have to be perfect for God to love you perfectly, and um, you know you just uh, you do the best you can. You um, you're going to fail, and you just you know that's going to be part of life, and uh, that He will meet you there if you are if you're on your knees in prayer to Him. He He doesn't turn away. He loves His children. So, what did Elijah do that we should consider, and how did God meet him when he was at his lowest point? So um, I think he was just very honest with God, respectful, but completely honest. He didn't um, pretend to be okay. He he pretty much was like, I'm done, and please just let this be over for me. And uh, God gave him exactly what he needed. He needed rest, he needed food, he needed water, um, and he let him, let him lay there until he was ready to move on. Uh, so I think that's a great picture of what God's love is really like. He's not um, hovering at 30,000 feet, looking down on us, separated and, and judgmental. Uh, he, he does love us and he cares for us, even the minutia, uh, the minute details of our life. How does that compare to your experience when you found yourself at a low point? So when I, it takes me a while um, sometimes to go get to that point um, because I'm I'm struggling and I'm striving. I'm trying to fix things on my own, and it's when I'm I'm just depleted and I, I can't. Uh, I'm like I give up. I I can't do this, and I I go to God in prayer, and it sometimes it takes me days. Uh, and I I journal in a prayer journal because it helps me to get my feelings out when I write it down longhand, um, and I just uh, am still. And uh, I just listen. And that's that's eventually what happened with Elijah after the broom tree. He um, he heard God in the in a still small whisper. And that's when he was able to to get back on his feet and really go back and do what God had called him to do. What can we do with uh, four young people who might be on the edge of either anxiety or depression um, they live a typical American kid life that can be in many ways overwhelming. What's the best way we can help them uh, to experience what you've just described? So they they have to know who Jesus is um, as a, in a relational way. And um, if you have a church 
that has uh, services for for the youth that meets them on their level and um, that they can relate to. I think that really helps them to have that as a, as a guide. So when they go to school and when they're around friends and when they're seeing things on social media or the internet that um, will try to pull them away from from knowing who they are in Christ, they they have that uh, connection there that they can always go back to. That they have people that they can talk to, adults that are trustworthy um, that will speak the truth to them, and that they know that they can go to the Bible, which is God's word and which is the truth, and it's unchanging. Now, what are some of the things that undermine a young person's capacity to to manage the pressures that come with just growing up? You mentioned that young people have too much information, but not enough truth. That exposed to um, social media that can undermine and and contribute to their worldview. What do you, what do you suggest? So uh, young people nowadays have an incredible amount of information at their fingertips. It's effortless to search, but a lot of what's out there is opinion or it's gossip. Some of it is just made up, and our minds were never made to sort through and scroll through all that information in a short amount of time, day after day. It's overwhelming and confusing. Um, but God's word is a truth, and most young people aren't taught to read it or seek it out. And um, before social media, we had to work through our, you know, our questions about, you know, does my body, is my body right? Do I fit in? Who am I? What's my identity? We had to allow ourselves to grow up. And now there's just this onslaught of suggestions available at um, young people's fingertips with a simple online search or a scroll through social media, which is all kids know how to do that. So there's a lot of information out there, but they they struggle, I think, sorting out what's trustworthy. Yeah, I think that's a, a challenge, I think, for all of us these days, if we're relying too much on uh, those kinds of um, sources for information. What do you hope your um, readers will, will take away from Under the Broom Tree in addressing anxiety and depression? Um, something that's becoming far more common. We're seeing uh, numbers of... Um, suicide rates among young people increasing, uh, people are struggling. What do you advise them to do and, and how will your book help? So I hope that from reading um, the book that people will know what it means to be a child of God, how, to, how important it is for all of us to understand that fundamental truth. Um, I want to take some stigma off of mental health issues, especially in the Indian culture, which is the culture that I grew up in. Um, and uh, for people to they know that it's okay to seek help, seek help early on and not wait until it's a crisis situation. And uh, know that there are people out there, there are adults who have, you know, gone through the same things. There's people that you can talk to, people that understand. And I hope in reading the book that um, more people will open up their Bible and read about people like Elijah, that his story is relatable and makes them curious. There's so many examples of people in the Bible who struggled with the things that we struggle with, like, um, Gideon's insecurity and need for constant reassurance, um, David, who had a heart after God that had so many missteps. He was so imperfect, but his he had a heart that uh, sought after God, and he was commended for that. And in reading about these people, they'll I hope they see God's love, sense presence, and his nearness, and ultimately get to know Jesus, because from beginning to end, the Bible is Jesus' story. It's a story of God's love for us. Amen. Well, Dr. Wilkins, thank you so much for the book and for talking with us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Once again, the title of the book, Under the Broom Tree. The book is published 
by Karis Publishing, and you can find it where you purchase your books. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to continue our march through some of the uh, uh, day's headlines uh, throughout the remainder of the program. We have news and traffic coming up in just a few moments. Just a reminder, on Friday, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news, and we'll also cover some of the day's um, headlines and the highlight of some of the stories from the week. Among them, a, a revised version of the federal policy known as the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA program, that prevents the deportation of thousands of immigrants that were brought to the Americas uh, as children, has once again been deemed illegal by a federal judge who gave the same ruling previously. We're talking about U.S. District Judge Andrew Hannon. He said in his decision on Wednesday that on the 16th of July, back in 21, the court vacated the DACA program created by the 2012 Memorandum, which prohibits the U.S., its departments, agencies, officers, agents and employees from granting new DACA applications and administering the program. Hannon's decision then uh, was confirmed by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and Wednesday reaffirmed by him. In other news, an FBI special agent involved in the Hunter Biden probe told the House Judiciary Committee that they didn't believe politics were involved in decision making during the federal investigation into the president's son, according to testimony. Well, the FBI agent uh, participated in a transcribed interview behind closed doors on Monday, the investigation ongoing. The interview comes with the House Judiciary Committee's investigation into the probe after IRS whistleblowers alleged that prosecutorial decisions throughout the Hunter Biden probe were influenced by politics. David Weiss, who served as the U.S. attorney for Delaware, has been leading the investigation since its onset some five years ago. When the agent was pressed on whether they thought decisions made by the U.S. attorney's office were made to give Hunter Biden some favoritism, the agent replied, I do not. So you don't think when Hunter Biden's lawyers were notified of pending search warrants, that wasn't an example of favoritism? Counsel asked. Well, the committee was then told that the agent was not able to speak about specific investigative steps. It continues. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Massachusetts National Guard members were officially deployed as rapid response teams on Wednesday to assist with the state's bursting migrant shelters as pressure mounts for President Biden to address the crisis in the state. The move to deploy 250 members comes as the Democrat governor, Mara Healy, declared a state of emergency several weeks ago because of the strain on the shelter system. Massachusetts is in a state of emergency and we need all hands on deck to meet this moment and endure families that access uh, give them access to safe shelter and basic services, Healy said in her statement. Currently, more than 6,000 migrant families are in emergency shelters across the state. Massachusetts is a right to a shelter state and must provide emergency housing to families in need. Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer previewed the next step for the House impeachment inquiry, which is an inquiry, not an impeachment, into President Biden on Wednesday, announcing plans to hold a hearing this month. Comer spoke at the weekly House GOP leadership news conference on Wednesday. 
telling reporters that House investigators will seek additional emails dating back to the Obama era when Biden served as vice president and witness testimony from people who allege the Biden family made millions of dollars in corrupt business deals with foreign nationals. We plan on having a hearing in September that will kind of evaluate some of the things that we believe have happened from the Biden family that are in violation with our law. End quote. Comer said at the weekly House GOP leadership news conference, Comer's spokesperson said specifics on the times and locations of the hearings will be forthcoming. A federal judge in Albuquerque, New Mexico, has issued a temporary restraining order blocking key parts of Governor Michelle Luan Grisham's executive order suspending open and concealed carry across Albuquerque and the surrounding uh, county for at least 30 days. And the White House is threatening to veto House Republican legislation that would give the military's junior enlisted troops a 30 percent raise next year. If the president were presented with H.R. 4365, he would veto it, the White House said in a press release addressing the proposed legislation on Monday. At issue is the Pentagon spending bill advanced by the House Appropriations Committee earlier this year and scheduled to be voted on by the full House this week. It includes language that would ensure no member of the military would make less than the equivalent of $15 an hour during a 40-hour work week. According to the report from Military.com, the legislation would mean an E-1 with at least four months of service would see pay raises of $2,601 per month compared to the 1918 those members currently make. Meanwhile, the E-6 with less than two years of service would bring in 3210 per month compared to the current 2980 But the White House has pushed back against the bill, claiming in the release that its current language includes partisan policy provisions with devastating consequences, including harming access to reproductive health care, threatening the health and safety of LGBTQIA Americans, endangering marriage equality, hindering critical climate change initiatives, and preventing the administration from promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion, end quote. Multiple liberal columnists have now urged President Biden to ditch Vice President Kamala Harris as his running mate for the 2024 presidential election. Columnists at The Washington Post, New York Magazine's The Intelligencer and the prominent independent writer said there are better options available for Biden's running mate and that he should choose one of them if he wants to a shot at winning reelection. Among the Democrats mentioned to replace Harris are Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock and Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth. In a Washington Post column from David Ignatius, the author's central argument was that Biden should not run for reelection at all uh, due to his age and because it would risk him undoing his greatest achievement, which was stopping Donald Trump. That was a couple of years ago. The White House was forcefully criticized after they sent a letter calling on the media to increase scrutiny of House Republicans and their impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Ian Sams, a special assistant to the president and spokesperson for the White House counsel, wrote the letter. The White House urged media outlets to ramp up their scrutiny of House Republicans. The House, uh, the White House remained silent on Speaker McCarthy's impeachment inquiry, rather lashing out at the GOP in a memo to the press On Tuesday, House Speaker McCarthy officially announced that launch of the impeachment inquiry. The White House is on the defense and lashing out in the lengthy memo published Wednesday. In it, the administration officials attack the media and demand reporters turn away from inquiring about President Joe Biden to instead focus on Republicans. And a federal judge in New Mexico on Wednesday issued a temporary restraining order. 
California lawmakers passed new concealed carry restrictions this week that appear to run up against a 2022 Supreme Court ruling that struck down limits on who can carry a handgun. Approved with a 28-8 state Senate vote on Tuesday, Senate Bill 2 limits who can obtain a concealed carry permit in California with an updated licensing process, new age restrictions, strict storage rules, and a list of dozens of sensitive, uh, sensitive places where guns are not allowed. All Republicans and one Democrat voted against it on the Senate floor. The bill's provisions require concealed carry applicants to be at least 21 years of age, undergo at least 16 hours of firearms training. Licensing authorities, primarily county sheriff's offices, would be tasked with conducting in-person interviews with applicants, obtaining character references, and reviewing their social media accounts to identify safety concerns. The legislation now heads to Governor Gavin Newsom, who has until the 14th of October to sign that bill. Meanwhile, India is uh, racing to contain deadly Nipah virus outbreak as hundreds are tested in one state of the country. They're racing uh, to contain the outbreak of uh, the virus, which has already killed two and carries a fatality rate in the World Health Organization, saying that as high as 75 percent. Around 800 people have been tested over the last few days in the country's southern Kerala state, with two adults and a child placed in a hospital after receiving a positive diagnosis. They're testing human beings, and at the same time, experts are collecting fluid samples from forested areas that could be the hotspot for the spread. Public offices, government buildings, and religious institutions have been shuttered in part of the reason as uh, samples of bat urine, animal droppings, and half-eaten fruit were taken from the village where the first victim lived. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention describes the Nipah virus as being zoonotic, meaning that it can be transmitted from animals to people and that fruit bats are the primary carriers of it in nature. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Hey, Ukraine demonstrated that it's capable of striking the Black Sea Fleet. The attack reportedly did serious damage to naval vessels, which were in dry dock for repairs, including a Russian sub. If the ships were destroyed, this will be the extensive strike to um, expensive strike for Russia. The Kilo-class sub was launched in 2014, reportedly cost about $300 million, but just as significant may have been the loss of the dry dock itself. Inflation jumped last month, largely because of a spike in gas prices, but other costs rose as well, more slowly, suggesting price pressures are easing at a gradual pace. Well, one can hope. In a set of conflicting data released on Wednesday, the Labor Department said the Consumer Price Index rose 3.7% in August from a year ago, up from 3.2% annual pace in July. Yet, excluding the volatile food and energy categories, so-called core prices rose 4.3%, a step back from 4.7% in July and the smallest increase in nearly two years. That's still far from the Federal Reserve's 2% target. The big rise in gas prices accounted for more than half of the monthly inflation increases, according to the government. 
The Biden administration on Wednesday announced a new $100 million federal funding effort to bolster the availability and reliability of public electric vehicle charging stations across the country in an effort to help solve what drivers cite as a major hurdle preventing them from switching out of their uh, gas-powered vehicles. The funds are made available under the 2021 Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and will be funneled to thousands of chargers nationwide that are currently listed as temporarily unavailable. Buttigieg himself has had trouble finding working charging stations for his hybrid minivan. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm also recently ran into a dust-up in which a Georgia family called the police on her staff for blocking off a charger for her use. Did they not learn from the when NASCAR posted their um, inter, in, uh, internship requirements? Apple will host entrepreneur training camps, excluding men and white people. They're set to host specialized entrepreneurial training camps that bar applicants based on their race and sex. To participate, organizations must have black, Hispanic, Latinx, as um, they like to refer to it, but is uh, wholly rejected by the, the um, Hispanic community, or indigenous members in both leadership and on staff. Citigroup Bank announced a mass restructure leading to layoffs. The CEO announced a corporate reorganization Wednesday, saying the move would cut down management layers and accelerate decisions. Frazier said in a release that Citigroup would go would be divided rather into five main business lines that report directly to her. Previously, the firm had two main divisions catering to consumers and large institutional clients. The U.S. plans to redirect some of its foreign military financing allocated for Egypt to Taiwan over what it says is Egypt's failure to make progress on human rights and other issues. The Biden administration has notified Congress that it would withhold $85 million in aid conditioned on the release of political prisoners and some lawmakers are pushing to withhold another $235 million in conditional assistance that goes to Egypt. Well, Washington, D.C. has such a massive rat problem that residents are starting to use their own dogs to hunt and eliminate them. There's a thought. U.S. District Judge Andrew Hannon ruled on Wednesday that Barack Obama's executive order creating the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals was illegal. And concern is growing around surrounding the ATF's effort to redefine the term gun dealer. The ATF has taken the phrase to predominantly earn a profit for a gun dealer and is seeking to expand it to include anyone who would sell a firearm. This would include gun collectors as the new rule narrows what is meant by personal collection to personal firearms that a person accumulates for study, comparison, exhibition or for a hobby. Conspicuously absent is self-defense. To make matters worse, the new rule adds to personal collection the following condition shall not include any firearm purchased for the purpose of resale or made with uh, the predominant intent to earn a profit. But one of the primary motivations behind building a collection of anything is um, often turning a profit when the ATF is attempting to do is declare that anyone engaged in the buying and selling of firearms is a gun dealer and therefore will need to be licensed as such. This is yet another attempt uh, to infringe on Americans' Second Amendment rights, opponents declare. Well, regarding Second Amendment infringement, Democrats in California have just passed a new concealed carry law that further restricts Californians' right to bear arms. The law, which is headed to the governor's desk, limits who can obtain a concealed weapons, a concealed carry permit. 
Mitt Romney, the 76-year-old Republican senator from Utah, announced on Wednesday that he will not seek re-election after his current term ends in 2025. The failed 2012 uh, Republican presidential candidate, who's been a loud critic of Donald Trump, uh, pledged, while I'm not running for re-election, I'm not retiring from the fight. President Biden made his first public comments on the impeachment inquiry and his first public comments since House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced the impeachment inquiry. The president seemed unfazed by the effort and insisted he remains focused on serving the American people. Well, I'll tell you what, I don't know quite why, uh, but they just knew they wanted to impeach me. And now the best that I can tell you. Uh, They want to impeach me because they want to shut down the government, referencing Congress's September 30th deadline to keep the government open. A little bit incoherent in that this is an inquiry and there won't be any effort toward impeachment, certainly not as soon as September 30th, if at all. Well, student loan payments are set to resume next month after a full three-year pause due to the coronavirus. And Ford Motor Company reports $4.5 billion loss from electric vehicles. The husband of Alaska Congresswoman Mary Peltola has died in an airplane crash. Well, on this day in history, 1814, Francis Scott Key is inspired to write the poem Defense of Fort McHenry, later the Star-Spangled Banner. After witnessing the American flag flying over the Maryland fort following a night of British naval bombardment during the War of 1812. 1847, during the Mexican-American War, U.S. forces under General Winfield Scott take control of Mexico City. 1901, President William McKinley dies in Buffalo, New York, of gunshot wounds inflicted by an assassin. Vice President Theodore Roosevelt succeeds him. In 1954, or rather 19, yes, 54, the Soviet Union detonates a 40-kiloton atomic test weapon. 1963, Marianne Fisher of Aberdeen, South Dakota, gives birth to four girls and a boy, the first known surviving quintuplets in the United States. 1982, Princess Grace of Monaco, formerly actress Grace Kelly, dies at age 52 of injuries from a car crash the day before. 1994, on the 34th day of a strike by players, acting baseball commissioner Bud Selig announces the 1994 season is over. 2009 on This Day in History, lecturing Wall Street on its own turf, President Barack Obama warns financial leaders not to use the recovering economy to race back into reckless behavior that could cause a new meltdown. 2018, President Trump's former campaign chairman Paul Manafort agrees to cooperate with a special counsel's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. Manafort pleads guilty to two federal crimes and avoids a second trial. Also in 2019, President Trump collects, uh, rather confirms that Hamza bin Laden, the son of former al-Qaeda leader and 9-11 mastermind Osama bin Laden, was killed in a United States counterterrorism operation in the Afghan-Pakistan region. Well, the U.S. Office of Naval Intelligence uh, slide that was leaked online highlights concerns over a rapidly expanding Chinese Navy and the country's continued capability to produce ships at a faster rate than the United States. The Chinese see this decade as a strategic opportunity. Brent Sadler, senior research fellow for naval warfare and advanced technology at the Center for National Defense at the Heritage Foundation, says, Uh, by the way, the Chinese shipbuilding capacity over 200 times greater than the U.S. Navy. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, Seattle. Have a great night. Want to thank uh, Pedro Bartes for producing and engineering in Seattle, Portland. 
will continue. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. This is the Portland edition. Well, if you go to Google and type heinous crimes up with young people, you'll see over 2 billion results. Now, it's a pretty stark reminder that the alarming trend of young people committing gruesome acts isn't a new phenomenon, but the sheer proliferation and frequency of these acts most certainly is. Now, our society is grappling with a disconcerting reality, a reality born out of the convergence of various factors from the messages embedded in our music to the desensitizing violence prevalent in our culture and entertainment and even the erosion of moral and ethical values. Each contributes to the emergence of a more violent society. Now, that's not to suggest that adults live pristine and moral lives. I'm just talking about one particular group in keeping with my conversation earlier in the program with my guest, Dr. Bina Wilkins, who is a pediatrician. It's a society where individuals no longer temper their darkest impulses. And regrettably, it's our youth who often find themselves on the front line, manifesting behaviors at an unacceptable rate. Behaviors they've seen modeled by others, adults. This is a phenomenon that should deeply trouble us in a number of ways and lead us to pause in, in concern for the direction in which our society is headed. Well, these young individuals, driven by a cocktail of influences, often react impulsively or, in the gravest of cases, meticulously planned, calculated crimes that result in the loss of innocent lives. We've witnessed stories like that in of Mackenzie Sharilla, a name etched into the annals of a society grappling with the aftermath of senseless violence. Sharilla was recently found guilty of the murder of her boyfriend, Dominic Russo, and her friend, Davion Flanagan. Now, their tragic deaths underscore the gravity of the situation that we're facing, a situation where young people are becoming entangled in webs of aggression and desperation. In Sharilla's case, she purposely sped up her uh, car to 100 miles an hour and drove straight into a wall, instantly killing her boyfriend and a friend. Well, the breakdown of morality in our society is contributing to this disturbing trend. Traditional values that once served as guiding principles seem to be waning, leaving a moral vacuum in which right and wrong are increasingly ambiguous, or they're just what I decide they are. The erosion of moral foundations means that young people are less equipped to distinguish between ethical choices and destructive actions. The deterioration of ethics further compounds the issue. Ethical conduct is the cornerstone of a civilized society, fostering a sense of responsibility and accountability. Yet, as we witness these disturbing trends among youth, it becomes evident that the concept of ethics is losing its grip. The pursuit of personal gain, even at the expense of others, has become alarmingly not only normalized, but celebrated. As we reflect on these developments, the implications for our future are profound and they're concerning. A society that permits the erosion of morality and ethics in its young generation is sowing the seeds of its own demise. The actions of today's youth foreshadow the trajectory of tomorrow's adults. If we fail to address these concerning trends, we risk the future marked by increased violence, social fragmentation and a dearth of empathy. It's time for us to confront these unsettling truths and take meaningful action by reemphasizing morality and ethics in our families, communities, and institutions. We can recalibrate the moral compass of our youth. 
This requires an unwavering commitment to fostering values that prioritize human dignity, human life, compassion, and respect for one another. Only through concerted efforts to restore these foundational principles can we hope to guide our society toward a more harmonious and promising future. Well, this alarming trend of young people exhibiting violence and aggression should serve as an urgent wake-up call for our educational institutions. And yet I fear they're not listening. We need to prioritize emotional education alongside academic excellence in our homes. But equipping our youth with the tools to manage their emotions, resolve conflicts constructively and communicate effectively, we can help curb the escalation of anger and violence. It's imperative that our schools become places not only of intellectual growth, but also of emotional well-being and character development. Now, I have to admit, I'm not very optimistic. Have you seen the entertainment that passes for appropriate for young audiences? Well, the rising wave of heinous acts committed by young people underscores the pressing need for a comprehensive societal response. We need to address the erosion of morality and ethics, and we need to prioritize emotional education. This is a challenge that requires the collective efforts of families, communities, educators, and cultural influencers. And by refocusing on our share of values, investing in the emotional well-being of young people, and fostering a renewed sense of empathy, we can shape a society that rejects violence and paves the way for a brighter and more harmonious future. One of the challenges we face in this effort, should we choose to accept it, is the fact that parents in the digital age need more quality time with their children. There was a survey taken recently. It was conducted by one poll on behalf of Camp Spot, and it revealed that more than half of U.S. parents, or 60 percent, are seeking ways to escape technology and reconnect with their kids. With nearly eight in 10, that's 79 percent of parents, claiming their experiences with their children are more memorable without the presence of electronic devices. It's no surprise that most, at 52%, most parents have attempted to limit technology usage within their household. Moms and dads are encouraging more outdoor play, setting time limits, and creating device-free zones. The majority also started engaging in outdoor family activities this summer with camping and hiking trips, Emerging as the most popular choice, that's followed by picnics and visiting amusement and water parks. Now, they might seem like old-fashioned pastimes, but they are ways for families to engage one another, for moms and dads to strengthen their relationships. And it's encouraging to hear that parents across the country are recognizing their need to spend more time with their children. Summer, of course, is the perfect time to unplug and reconnect, but it's not the only time. That truly matters is family. A chief marketing officer for Camp Spot says, we need to take the reins. In a statement, we know the power of stepping away from screens and immersing ourselves in nature. It's often in these moments that we create the strongest family bonds. Camping in particular offers a unique opportunity for families to experience new adventures, fostering not only a love for the outdoors, but also nurturing children's self-development. Well, summer's almost to an end. But that's only one of many, many options. American parents agree with the majority asserting that outdoor activities foster communication and connection within the family as well as creating lasting memories that help a family bond. So it's encouraging once again to know that there are families that are making the commitment and recognizing we need to put the screens down and that families are spending less and less time uh, together and it's having an impact. 
Well, speaking of families, since the overturning of Roe versus Wade, GOP politicians have seen several losses both in the voting booth and in state legislation. A conversational a private meeting was proposed for a small select group of Republican senators to discuss what may be um, what may have changed in the abortion debate. And according to the Senate Leadership Fund Super PAC, the problem is the way people now understand key terms surrounding the debate terms surrounding the debate. Well, the terms in question are pro-life and pro-choice. According to some polls, uh, poll results that were presented to the uh, senators, Americans see the term pro-life as shorthand for banning all abortion and pro-choice for having exceptions. Even Senator Josh Hawley, after reviewing these uh, polls, said many voters think pro-life means you're for no exceptions in favor of abortion ever, ever, and pro-choice now can mean any number of things. So the conversation was mostly oriented around how voters think of these uh, labels that they've shifted. So if you're going to talk about the issue, you need to be specific, they've agreed. To some extent, perhaps it is a bit of confusing message, but that's not necessarily the fault of pro-life Republicans. Pro-choice Democrats have the position that seems flexible, generous even. How lovely it is to be on the side of choice. The uneducated voter hears that and thinks having choices, which is synonymous with freedom in the lexicon, is the highest form of good. However, what is the choice being presented when it is morally, when is it morally acceptable to kill an unborn baby? Well, pro-lifers, on the other hand, encompass a spectrum ranging from full-on abortion of abolitionists to conceding exceptions when the mother's life is in danger or even sometimes for rape and incest. The goal of these pro-lifers is to save children's lives and help their mothers. The only term that really should be changed is pro-choice. For women who are faced with these decisions to keep or abort their babies, the act of abortion is often presented to them as expedient. It's their only option. They're not offered alternatives like adoption or shuffled or given resources to help them. Instead, they're shuffled through abortion clinics like cattle and their helpless children are, well, their lives are ended. Then these shattered and broken women are shunted uh, from the world as if nothing had happened. There is no follow up, no care. In fact, you can't even complain about what happened. Well, the proper term for pro-choice is merely pro-abortion. Pro-life means just that. People are for not killing babies. They are for supporting mothers and fathers who are in a difficult situation. In the culture today, those who have dedicated themselves to coming alongside these women and their children and their families, there's an effort to quiet them, to end their their um, um, existence at all. Well, politically, perhaps it might be expedient to reexamine the terms, but being pro-life, whatever level that may be, isn't the word that needs to uh, have a marketing makeover. The GOP would do well to continue to stand firm on this issue, to stand for life and to support those who choose life by giving options for those who choose to live. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Just a tomorrow, uh, reminder, tomorrow being Friday, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news in the second half of the first hour, and we'll share this week's Christian outlook right here on The Georgine Rice Show. Well, last week, Mexico, New Mexico Governor Michelle Luan Grisham created a firestorm with an executive order suspending for 30 days the right to concealed or open carry of a firearm in um, 
Bernalillo County, where Albuquerque, the state's most populated city, is located. In her order, she declared gun violence to be a public health emergency, using recent fatal shootings as examples and citing statistics showing that gun violence is the leading cause of death for New Mexicans under age 19. I understand her frustration. Many of us uh, grieve the loss of life that's a result of violence in our culture today. Possession of firearms has been lawful in the United States since the country was founded. And yet we don't have the problem with gun violence even just a few decades ago that we have now. Why aren't we asking why? What has changed? We shouldn't be at least interested in explaining that violence as we are uh, in passing laws trying to prevent it. Well, statistics actually provide a pretty great uh, deal of insight. First, in any given year, more than 50% of all gun-related deaths are suicides. Now, this is profoundly relevant to Grisham's concern for young people in her state and throughout the country, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Suicide has been the first or second leading cause of death for Americans under age 24 for the past quarter century, and more than 50% of all suicides involve guns. Homicide falls right behind as the third leading cause of death in the same age demographic. The vast majority of gun homicides takes place in our cities, uh, perpetuated by young males using handguns that were acquired illegally. In other words, we don't have a gun problem. We have a terrible problem with young people. Now, that's not to suggest that young people are all bad, but using guns that are not legally theirs and they are not legally um, entitled to is a problem. Ever larger number of American youth suffer from depression, as we discussed earlier in the program, anxiety and a sense of hopelessness that makes suicide look like a desirable option. And our cities and prisons are filled with those who have neither respect nor reverence for life, theirs or others. Single parenthood, widespread divorce, broken homes, absent fathers, gang violence, and the sexualization of every aspect of young people's lives, just to name a few societal trends, have taken a brutal toll. Opponents of Grisham's executive order and other gun control efforts point to the U.S. Constitution and say that the rights enshrined therein are inviolate. And it's often said that the Constitution is grounded in principles found in Judeo-Christianity. Both statements are true, but they neglect a fundamental point. The role of Judeo-Christianity in the success of the American political experiment lies not in its manifestations within the federal or state governments, but in the manifestations of those beliefs and values in the everyday conduct of ordinary Americans. This is what our second president, John Adams, meant when he said, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. In other words, the liberties recognized and protected in the United States Constitution depend upon the voluntary self-restraint of its citizens. What we have been seeing, at least since the 1960s, is the abandonment of self-restraint. Our most significant cultural institutions encourage irresponsible behavior. The entertainment industry actively promotes immediate gratification, self-absorption, greed, envy, violence, sexual promiscuity, and substance abuse. The media amplifies and glorifies these very behaviors, and the government subsidizes them. In this climate, we can't be shocked when those behaviors become more widespread, and the consequences therefrom 
have become appallingly costly, not only in terms of monies from the public coffers, but countless lives diminished or destroyed. In addition to the heartbreaking stats about suicide and homicide, 15 to 24-year-olds now consistently represent more than half of all cases of sexually transmitted diseases every year. 15 to 24-year-olds, more than half. Our cities are filled with homeless and mental ill people, staggering or laying inert in substance-fueled stupors on streets filled with urine and feces. Thieves steal from lawful businesses and break into cars in broad daylight, and our government looks the other way. Mobs loot and destroy and burn entire city blocks to the ground, while academics and analysts dismiss this behavior as legitimate protest for social ills. Criminals who commit violence, physical and sexual assaults, including rape and attempted murder, are released on low bail or no bail at all. Parents are having to fight with school boards and administrators about the inclusion of sexually explicit materials in grade school curricula and libraries, while teachers argue on TikTok that they have the right to share intimate details of their sexual identities and preferences with their students. In short, fewer Americans are willing to conform their behaviors to established norms for purposes of preserving a civilized society. As the consequences of diminished self-restraint multiply, the calls for more external restraints, more and larger government will increase. And what will we receive in the future? More and larger government, less and less liberty, less and less freedom. It's foolish, therefore, to think that just because a right or a liberty is placed in the Constitution, it will remain inviolate forever. Eventually, enough mayhem will be will have occurred that people will clamor to amend the Constitution, to restrict or even remove rights identified in the Constitution. One by one, the rights guaranteed by the Constitution will be taken away. They must be in order to protect the public. Whenever there are calls for a return to Judeo-Christian principles, the naysayers proclaim, we don't want a theocracy. Well, nor do I. The best assurance of our continuation as a free and prosperous nation is not our Constitution, but our own decisions. We as individuals can freely choose to restrain ourselves, relying upon principles handed down by God himself and recorded in his word. Or we can pretend to be freer by ignoring those principles, as we are witnessing right now, the increased government control that inevitably follows the resulting chaos will leave everyone much, much less free. And that's where we stand today. I appreciated Dr. Wilkins in the previous hour talking about the challenges we face and how she and her own struggles found that uh, God's word and pressing into a relationship with Christ made all the difference. It's certainly been the case for me as well. And I would just encourage all of us to consider uh, where we stand in our relationship to Christ where we stand in terms of our understanding of and time spent in his word. Our society is in desperate need. And those of us who know him have the answer to the questions that are being asked in our culture, perhaps not very politely, but they are questions that need answers. And I hope that we are bold enough to put ourselves in a position to speak truth in love, to share the love of Jesus, even in hard ways when the truth may be difficult to hear. Well, all of that said, God or government, 
We need Jesus. I want to thank James Blind for producing, Dave King for engineering, Pedro Bartz for producing in Seattle, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.